Thank you. I'll try not to be too cutting. Um, I should preface all of this by saying I am not. Um, I would not like to claim that the Economist has all the answers to everything. Um, and in fact, uh, a great deal of our. So we're an unusual news organisation in many, many ways. Um, not the least of which is that we um, are just about to announce another sixty million pound profit. Um, and. Oh, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that. Well, anyway, we're profitable, um, and uh, and our circulation is you know is is steady and uh, you know at 1.6 million and um, and so on. So uh, so people always ask, well, what is it that you do differently? And so I, I'm going to tell you what we do differently, but you'll see that an awful lot of it is not sort of brilliant strategy on our part. It's just an accident, um, and that a consequence of um, these differences between the way we do things and the way everyone else does things is one consequence is that it's very hard for anyone else to copy our model again not because it's particularly brilliant it's just it's an accident so I thought I'd start off by just explaining our model and how it differs from that of others and in uh, that will entail looking at the, the state of the industry as a whole um, and then I thought I'd look at things that all news organizations including us need to have answers to today so new things and we are in the beginning of developing our answers to them, but I'm not saying we have the answer either. In fact, I've got some other tabs lined up of people who are arguably at the cutting edge of those, of those questions. But these are all things that you are no doubt grappling with as well. So this is you know, native advertising, data, uh, wonk blogs and explainers, that sort of thing. So I thought I'd, I'd come on to that. But anyway, let's start with The Economist. So The Economist is weird um, for a number of reasons. Uh, I suppose the first one is that it's global and it always has been, well it has been for um, most of living memory, and it's also weekly. And those turn out to be quite useful things to be. Global turns out to be useful because globalisation is a big deal and people want to know about it. We have been called the House Journal of Globalisation. I think it was meant to be an insult. Um, we've, we've also, I remember um, Charles Moore described us as um, our journalism as childless journalism. Um, and I, I, see where he come, I see where he's coming from there. We do not do um, touchy-feely stories. In fact, when we, on the rare occasions that we do stories on things like parenting, which is extremely rare, but occasionally, for example, one of our language bloggers will write about bringing up children in a bilingual household, and everyone will go nuts. I mean, the, 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 uh, it, it will be an incredibly popular story. So maybe we should do more stuff about parenting, but we don't. Um, instead, I was once asked, who is The Economist written for? And I said, it's for an alien who's just landed and speaks English. And it's very curious. And this is why we say things like Ford, a car maker, because um, the alien wouldn't know that. <coughs> Another way of looking at this is to say we are the view from the moon. So all of this is kind of a bit weird, um, but has the advantage that it's not rooted in any particular place and instead tries to give you the view from the moon and says, what are the most, if you were an alien and you were looking at the world from the moon, what would you say were the most interesting things that had happened this week? And what should you think about them? And we tell you what we think about them. And we have all sorts of other weird um, cultural things like anonymity, which allows us to speak with a collective voice um, and so on. But it turns out that being global and weekly is a good thing to be at the moment because, as, as you will have noticed, the internet means that all news organisations are now pretty much competing with all other news organisations. So the local monopolies they enjoyed, whether that's in a metro area or a country or whatever, um, are, are either under threat or have gone already. And you know the BBC competes directly with the New York Times and the Guardian. And clearly, you have a different situation in countries where you have different languages, but 
broadly, there is a lot more competition across borders than there used to be. So if you were global in the first place, that's not really a problem because you were already taking a global view and already competing globally with all of those other people in all of those markets. So that turns out to be quite cool. And then being a weekly is quite cool because one of the things that a lot of um, dailies have started to do, and this began in Detroit um, in the financial crisis, but a whole bunch of regional papers have done it in this country, is go from dailies to daily to weekly. So you do weekly print publication and then you update digitally in between. And this is a very attractive model. I'm pretty sure the New York Times will be a weekly within five years because it makes sense to produce something in print because you can sell the print <coughs> advertising. You can make a nice glossy magazine, but you don't want to be doing it too often because it's quite expensive. So what the Detroit papers found, they went from um, seven-day publication to four- or three-day publication, and they kept 92% of their print advertising revenue. So they essentially compressed it into fewer print editions and um, cut their print and distribution bill in half, and that made a lot of sense. So I think, and similarly, if looking at it from the other, the other end, if you look at what monthly magazines do, or even bi-weekly magazines, let alone weeklies like us, they now produce a print edition every one, two, or four weeks, and then in between they update <coughs> digitally. So that seems to be where we've all sort of ended up. And um, not producing print too often seems to be quite a good move. So again, by virtue of being a weekly, we were conveniently in the right place. Um, other odd things about us, um, it is obvious when you point it out, but a great merit of The Economist is that you can finish it. So you can never finish the internet, and you can actually almost never finish a newspaper. Certainly you can't finish the New York Times on a Sunday. And I like to say that what we're really selling is the feeling of being informed, and it may only be the feeling of being informed, but at least it's the feeling of being informed when you get to the end. You can actually get to the end and go, there, I've done it. And this is sort of catharsis of finishing reading the news, and then you can go and do whatever it is you want to do. And we call this finishability, and it's um, absolutely core to what we do, uh, we take the week's news, we distill it, we, we filter it, we distill it. We are a trusted filter, it turns out. So people trust us to tell them what's really important about the news this week. Um, and that seems not to include things like the celebrity news, uh, things like that. So it is, you know, if, if it's the kind of filter that you're looking for, um, then it's great because we save you the trouble of having to read all the papers and having to decide what to think. There's a nice quote from Larry Ellison of Oracle who says, I used to think and now I just read The Economist. <laughs> so, um, so for our readers, not everyone likes it, but for those who do, we are a trusted filter and we, we make it possible for you to get your arms around the news by just sort of saying, look, just read this and you're done. And you can read it in an hour and a half or so on a, on a Saturday morning. And we don't expect you to read every single piece. Um, we just give you the option of here are some stories that we think are important and pick out the ones and then when you've done that you are excused and you may go and do something else. Um, so that is a quite an unusual thing and as the news environment has got noisier, as there have been more sources that update more often, the demand for that filter has increased and that is a, um, a key reason why what we do has become not only something that more people want but that's something that people are prepared to pay um, really quite a lot for. So our base subscription rate is $127 a year, um, whereas you can get you know, the New Yorker for 50 and you can get time for sort of 15 or 20 now. So compared with other weeklies, we are really quite expensive. But the, the proposition is, we, there's a lot of value here. Uh, we are saving you the trouble of having to read anything else. Um, so that's, that's where we're, we're coming from. Um, 
Another interesting thing about us uh, that, again, is total accident is that we're not American. So it turns out that in America, in particular, there is quite a lot of demand for a less parochial version, uh, for a less parochial take on the news. In particular, if you're a business in America and you want to know what's going on in the world, you may not feel that you're terribly well served by your local media. So our largest market is now North America, it has been actually for 20 years or so. Um, more than half our subscribers are in the US and Canada. And they, they particularly value the external perspective on America and its place in the world. So if you look at, well, if this was particularly the case, during periods when America has been unpopular, so during the Bush years, there, is, there has always been greater interest among Americans, particularly Americans who disagree with the government, in reading foreign news. So The Guardian did terribly well out of this, and we did well out of it as well, that people wanted an external take on how the rest of the world saw America. And by and large, there is more demand for a sort of global approach to things from business people in particular in America, but you know, Americans in general. So again, that has helped us enormously. Now something I sometimes like to do for fun, and in fact I might as well do it now since I've got a computer in front of me, um, is I Google the expression, here we are, inverted commas, more like the economist. Now this is an expression very often uttered by American uh, weekly news magazine editors when they tell you that they're going to change their magazine to make it more like the economist. Newsweek is going to become more like the economist. Um, here we are. The Economist, everyone copies it, but yes, can anyone, can anyone actually do it? it? Newsweek's going to be more like The Economist. Um, who else has done it? Anyway, so there are lots of examples of this. Businessweek wants to be more like The Economist, etc., um, etc. Et anyway, so it's quite amusing to, um, to Time magazine. It looks a bit more like The Economist. Um, anyway, so um, the problem that these American magazines have is... Um, one that they can't do anything about, which is they're American. I mean, it's not the only problem they have, but it's one of the problems they have, which is that trying to establish the sort of reputation we have for being able to tell you what's going on in the whole world rather than just America is something that takes a long time to do and is probably harder if you're American than if you're not. So the new Newsweek that's been relaunched is actually rather good, the latest version of it. I mean, they got it wrong about um, Satoshi, but, um, but apart from that, uh, the, the journalism is, it looks, looks rather impressive. And they have raised their prices because they want to pursue a subscription-driven business model, which is more like The Economist. So good luck to them with that. Um, but that's another thing that makes us different, which is that we get most of our revenue from subscribers, not from advertisers. Um, for many years, I think it's still true, we basically break even on, the, on, the, um, on everything without the advertising, and the advertising is, is the profit. Or at least you could, you could slice it that way. And this is unusual, particularly if you look at uh, that lovely study that was produced by the Reuters Institute that showed that the peak in America was, nine, was 2008 when the average American newspaper got 87% of its revenue from advertising. So in a world like that, a 20% fall in advertising is very painful indeed. It's essentially a 20% fall in your revenue. We are at less than 30%, way less than 30% now. I think we only ever got to about 30% um, revenue from advertising. We our business plan expects advertising to become a less and less important part of our revenue. We'll take the money while it's there, but we don't expect it to be there for much longer and our business model is not predicated on its continued existence. So we actually raised our prices to um, subscribers at the end of 2012 
Um, that $127 I mentioned earlier used to get you a print subscription to The Economist and access to all our digital platforms. And that month we said, actually, we're going to start asking people to pay explicitly for digital. So new subscribers are offered a choice, um, a print digital bundle, which is $165, or either print or digital on its own for $127. And um, slightly less than a quarter take print only. Nearly everyone takes digital only or print plus digital. And that means that a big and very rapidly <coughs> growing chunk of our audience is explicitly paying us for digital, which is also a good, good position to be in. But we're actually agnostic about whether people take print or digital. Our mantra internally is print is just another device. And it's very clear from our readers that they like to be able to move from reading in print to reading on a phone to reading on the web to reading on a tablet. And they're not really that bothered. Um, and they want the flexibility, they want the option of being able to read in print um, just in case. So uh, the proportion that give up and say I'm going to go completely digital is quite small, but what we actually see is multimodal, uh, multi-platform reading. So we are not trying to force people either to stay on, on print uh, in print because we want uh, print advertising revenue, but nor are we trying to push them off into digital because our margins are higher. We really are pricing them both the same and saying you decide and we really aren't that bothered. And if our readers still want to read us in print in 20 years' time, we will still make a print edition. Um, anyway, not being so dependent on advertising, good position to be in. Again, quite difficult to get into that position if you're not in it. Um, we, we are seeing it happening. The New York Times you know, now famously gets more, I think, more subscriber revenue than ad revenue. But this is chiefly because, um, well, they've signed up lots of people for their paywall, but it's also because their ad revenues collapsed. So um, that's, why, that's a big reason why one overtook the other. Another thing about us is that we do politics and business, and this helps when you're covering globalisation, but it also helps when you're covering things like the Euro crisis, um, or even the bankruptcy of GM. That's both a politics story and a business story, and a publication that only does one or the other can't give you the whole story. Um, so there are very good publications that specialise in one or the other, but we think doing both is, is vital. So Business Week is very good, but it doesn't really do politics. It sort of does inside the Beltway politics or belt, pol politics as it pertains to regulation of business, but particularly in America. Um, so I have a great deal of respect for what they do, but um, in the long run, I think you need, to have, you need to do business and politics together. Another thing that we do is we uh, take a position on things. So someone has not entirely inaccurately described The Economist as an entire magazine full of leaders masquerading as news articles. It's not quite as bad as that, but we do have positions on things that we um, that we make clear. And again, I think this is a this is a growing trend. People say transparency is the new objectivity. Sorry, is, yeah, is the new objectivity. So the idea that you sort of report it straight and you say climate change is a terrible thing, say scientists. Only not everyone agree. You know, we're all familiar with this argument. Um, my take on it is you can be as biased as you like, if, as long as you tell people what your biases are. And uh, we've made it very clear what ours are because we were founded in the 1840s to campaign for free trade, and that's sort of our main thing. But we are essentially a 19th century liberal newspaper, so we make it very clear. We, we will often use the expression, as a liberal newspaper, the economist thinks X. Uh, this is liberal in the 19th century English tradition. Um, liberal is a, an insult, of course, of different kinds in both France and America. Um, in America, if you're called a liberal, it means you're left-wing on social policy, that would be us. And in France, it means you're right-wing on fiscal policy, that would also be us. Um, so anyway, we're proud to be both, um, but even though they're both insults. 
in, in different countries. Um, so on that whole question of where does this newspaper stand? Is it is it really objective? Is it is it you know what does it really think? Well, we tell you where we're coming from, which is you know we're in favour of um, we're in favour of uh, liberal policies broadly defined, and uh, and we tell you what they are. And sometimes we change our minds and say, for example, on the minimum wage, we said that introducing a minimum wage in this country was wrong um, because it would uh, it would hamper job creation. <coughs> All the evidence, it turned out, showed that that was not the case. So we wrote a leader saying, well, we were wrong. And there's now talk of uh, uh, raising the minimum wage in America. And, and people in America are saying, this would be a terrible idea um, for all the reasons that we said in the 1990s. And there are some differences between the British and the American job markets. But basically, the evidence is not that strong that this hampers job creation, certainly at the level they're talking about in America. Um, so we tell you what we think. And um, and we could probably admit we were wrong a bit more often. But anyway, um, we do occasionally admit we were wrong and change our minds. So, so that's, that's, again, this idea that newspapers have to not take, well, have to be, you have to have a distinction between objective reporting and, and leaders. Um, and in practice, you don't always. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's fine as long as you know where people are coming from. Uh, as is always the case, the technology blogs are the furthest down the road here. Um, you, tech blogs are great because you tend to get new phenomena in journalism appearing there first just because they've got they're, the, they're just the most savvy with, with technology uh, so if you look at all things D actually it's not all things D anymore but, but when Cara Swisher and um, and Walt Musburg were at all things D they had the longest and most complicated declaration of interest and policies um, you've ever seen but uh, but this was a this was a very good thing they were saying for example a classic trope in the technology world is if someone is reviewing a piece of software or a, or a computer or a peripheral or something, they should tell you if they're a Mac or a PC user because you can't really judge what they're saying unless you know that. Um, and, you know, that might sound a bit bizarre, but actually I find that very useful to know. <laughs> um, so this is the kind of thing that in the technology world people are starting to do. There are also, some of the tech blogs are saying things like, we are going to put up full transcripts of all the interviews we do alongside the pieces and sometimes the audio as well. Um, this is the kind of thing that tech blogs think is really cool. They tend to have really good CMSs. I mean, the, um, the best of all is, so Vox is using this one here, which is called Chorus. Um, this is why Ezra Klein went to Vox. Um, actually, it's not the most beautiful example of it. The most beautiful example of it is probably The Verge, which is the tech blog in the same stable from Vox. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, so I like reading tech blogs anyway, because I'm a tech geek. But uh, they're actually incredibly useful, because the first blogs were about technology. They were about the web and about blogging. And um, tech blogs are, by and large, the tip of the spear when it comes to um, cool new stuff. Um, anyway, so my general point is uh, declare your biases and then say what you like. Um, another unusual thing about us is that we're a badge brand. So there's a famous video in The Simpsons where Homer is on a plane and he's, they've been upgraded to business class so he picks up The Economist and says look at me I'm reading The Economist um, and the cover says Indone uh, that's right then he says did you know Indonesia is at a crossroads so every time we write about Indonesia we have to say at, at a crossroads or beyond the crossroads <laughs> in, in homage to, to Homer Simpson but, the, the, but this is what this is indirectly referencing is the, is the sort of you feel like you're members of a club if you read The Economist you get on a plane and you see other people read it and you think oh yes my sort of, my sort of people um, and we can sort of trade on this with things like our daily chart um, 
so daily chart or so it it ought not to work at all um us doing social media but for some reason it does because <coughs> so if i go to daily chart which is here this is our daily chart blog um, this does these these charts do very well on social media because if you share this on Facebook, you're essentially like Homer Simpson saying, "Look at me, I read the Economist." And you may not. You may actually only read our jolly charts on you know who drinks the most alcohol or who has the most plastic surgery. That was a very popular one actually. <laughs> so let's just let's put that one in. It's, it's uh, plastic, uh, plastic surgery. Someone's already been looking up plastic surgery on here. Um, so these are jolly, jolly things that are sort of ambassadors for us on the internet um, and work as a, as a badge brand. Um, here we are, who has the most plastic surgery? And there you can see, and you can see different parts of the body. Yeah, it's and the most, yes, the most penis enlargements in Greece, apparently, so there you are. Um, Anyway, so this kind of thing, it, this is great because this very much encapsulates the economist's view of the world. It's data-driven, it's global, um, it's a little bit silly, and it's, it's very compact. It gets to the point, and this does, sort of thing does very well on Facebook and Twitter. It gets people to come and read our stuff, and we hope that some of them will become our future customers. Um, so... Why am, I, why am I saying this? This is just this connects to the idea of, of The Economist being a badge brand. It's not a badge everybody wants to wear, but it's a badge that lots of people want to wear. So that is a good thing from our point of view. Can I have a question, question just to this? Sure. Uh, when you publish this, this survey, who has the most plastic survey? What do you use it for? I mean, would you then go to South Korea and find out why they have the most plastic surgery in the world? Or, <coughs> or is it just yeah. statistics? Um, well, this is part of our, our daily chart blog. So it is a, um, it is a, every day we produce a chart about something, and uh, some of them are serious. Some of them is a, you know. So we did one recently on the death penalty and the decline of the death penalty. Some of them are. You know, this is about the, uh, China's GDP overtaking America's. Um, so here, here's the death penalty one. So they are, they are very varied. They're not all silly, but they are a very good. Um, sort of tasting menu for the sort of content that The Economist covers. And sharing a great big article about, you know, Venezuela's economy on Facebook is, and expecting people to read it if they've never read us before, is asking a lot. But asking them to come and read a jolly, jolly chart is not asking quite so much. So um, we are a brand that should not work on social media at all because we are, you know, social media is supposed to be about being, pers being a person and being yourself, you know, we are anonymous and, um, and so on. But uh, but it does, it turns out that it does work. So um, anyway, so those are all the things about, about us that are a bit weird and different from everyone else. And by accident, essentially, they all turn out to be collectively good things to be. But as you can see, they're also, this isn't a sort of secret formula that anyone else can, um, can apply. Most of these things really are just accidents. Um, so sorry about that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Other things that are going on at the moment. So we have, I should just set to say where we are in our digital transition. So we've got 1.6 million circulation. We've got about a million people a month using our apps and they are split roughly 50-50 between paying subscribers using our apps and people who are trialing um, our apps. So you get three free stories a week. Uh, what other numbers are floating around? So that gives you some sense of, the, of how far, we, we made a good start on the, 
um, on the transition, I suppose, to digital. The numbers I'm looking for, it's, we are not pushing people from print to digital because we're selling this combined thing. So the number I look for, the number I follow, is actually the proportion of people who are, the proportion of paying customers who are paying us for digital explicitly. Now they may also be paying us for print, but I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is how many of our customers are paying us for digital. And I think it's, it's somewhere between 30 and 40% now. Um, from you know only about ten percent a couple of years ago before we did this uh, this switch, so at some point we are going to get to a point where most of our customers are paying us for digital, and at that point I think I will declare victory and say I think that's that's what a digital transition uh, ought to look like. I don't think it's a, a in other words I'm not defining it as all of our subscribers are digital and we haven't got any print ones because I think we're just going to go on having print ones so we don't see this as a push people from the print bucket into the digital bucket the question is what proportion of the total are um, have got one foot in the digital bucket. Uh, anyway so that's the that's where we are on the on the digital transition obviously this is a very moving target this whole world and um, there are all sorts of interesting things going on at the moment so I thought I might show you our answers to those questions but uh, they're all works in progress and I think other people have probably better answers than us in nearly all of these cases. But they're just things that you'll be grappling with as well. So if we look, for example, at um, native advertising. So this is something that, this is a good example of it. Well, it's not a brilliant example because they seem to be geo-targeting their ads. But here's, here's how it works with Quartz. So if you're not familiar with this, when you scroll through their stories, occasionally you'll get a massive great ad. And in fact, sometimes you'll get a post which is, it looks like a post, but instead of having a fly title here, it'll say sponsor post, and it'll be a piece about how wonderful Chevron is. So let's see if we can find one. I have a feeling that they're they're targeting, so we, because we're not in America, we're not seeing them. Uh, there's got to be one around here somewhere. Anyway, for me, the definition of, now that is actually not an ad, that's actually a story. Um, <laughs> the definition of, uh, of, native, of, uh, of native advertising is that you, use you present advertising in the space um alongside alongside the editorial in basically in the same stream um so in fact you're using the same cms and you are creating things that look like articles but are in fact ads and as long as they're labeled properly you know that's okay i suppose um so i wish i could find a proper example of it on here maybe the atlantic has one let's have a quick look there and then they don't have a they don't have a stream presentation for that do they Anyway, um, I think these guys, Swartz are very interesting because they are, among many other things, they are explicitly an attempt to create what The Economist would be like if you set it up now. They launched it in 2012, and I think there are a lot of very clever things about it. The one problem I have with it is that their business model is based entirely on advertising, and I think that's quite a surprising decision for a news organisation launched in 2012. And I don't know how sustainable that is, so I think they may need to find other sources of revenue. But anyway, um, they're very interesting. But Quartz, which is part of the Atlantic group, the Atlantic did some quite interesting things, you might say, with native advertising, which were quite informative for the rest of the industry. So they famously ran these ads from the Scientologists, and everyone went nuts. Um, so one problem with running ads from Scientologists was, let's see if we can find one here. We just go to technology, can we see it? Um, one problem with that is that, you know, advertising, even if you label a, an advert, some adverts are just, you know, you, some adverts are maybe not appropriate. <laughs> and this one turned out not to be appropriate. And their readers really didn't like it. Um, but the next problem was, because they'd used the same CMS, the, um, 
the commenters, when you were banning them from commenting on the Scientology ad, you were also banning them from commenting on Atlantic content. So that, in retrospect, is perhaps not a brilliant way of doing things. Um, so let me show you our take on all of this. And I'm not saying this is right and they're wrong. I'm just saying that we are unhappy with the idea that we should be, um, if we go to one of our blogs, we shouldn't have um, adverts mixed in with the, with the pieces here. These are all pieces and these are ads. And these particular ads link to this microsite that we built for GE. So this is a GE, the GE ad here. Um, and in fact, this blog is sponsored by GE. But all that means is they get all these ads. And if you click, you get taken through to this microsite here. And this is our most prominent um, example of this kind of advertising. Um, and it's where you have uh, essentially content that comes directly from GE. So it's their stuff, it's their videos, it's them talking about, about stuff. And, um, and they deliver it to our audience through our publishing platform. But it's got its own um, domain name here. And none of this stuff is produced by economist journalists, so we have no in input into this whatsoever. Um, so we're much happier doing it this way, where they actually have their own, basically their own website um, that sits alongside The Economist. So that's, the, that's our take on that. But clearly, lots of different news organisations news organizations are coming up with different takes on native content. The, at the bottom of it is the fact that you know, every company is a publisher now, not just us publishers. And this is GE saying, we essentially want to write a magazine about stuff that we do. So that's what they've done. And other companies, you know, Coca-Cola, do this themselves on their own website and publish directly to their, to their own audience. But in some cases, companies want to work with a publishing partner to reach that audience. Um, so I'm sure we're going to see a lot more innovation in, in that field. Another example, actually, would be Vox. So Vox is interesting for a different reason. Vox is a company that is making video work. I don't think... News organisations generally are struggling with video. We can all do it. Te technically, it's suddenly possible for us to publish video. The trouble is, um, those news organisations in the background in broadcast tend to just try to do broadcast on the web. And those of us who do print do a sort of imitation of broadcast on the web. Um, and Vox is interesting. There are a few people who are doing something that looks like a new thing. Um, and Vox is a good example. So they do this quite gonzo coverage. Um, of disaster areas where people sort of run around and say, what's going on? Why is there a revolution happening here? Uh, and it's very compelling. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's sorry, this is Vice I'm talking about. Sorry, the, uh, I've got Vox and Vice. Anyway, so, very good part. so Vice is the, um, uh, you know, they're really making money out of this. And they have an interesting model, which I think a traditional news organisation would not have started up with um, on, the, on the video front. But uh, they wanted to, so... They did a deal, for example, with Intel about global creatives. So Intel wanted to be associated with creativity. So Intel sponsored a series of short pieces, video pieces, that, that Vice did where they went and interviewed creative people in lots of different fields. Um, and that was a great deal for everyone. Vice got you know, $15 million out of it or something. Um, Intel got to association with, with uh, you know, lots of cool musicians and, and inventors and things. And... Um, and people got to watch this content. And Intel didn't have any input into the content itself. Um, so, so everyone's happy. But I think that's the kind of deal that a traditional news organisation would kind of feel a bit, a bit queasy about. Uh, but maybe less queasy than they would have done a couple of years ago. Uh, anyway, Vice, very, very interesting because whenever you talk to anyone about 
who is doing video well and in a way that's sort of genuinely digital, digitally native, theirs is nearly always the first name that comes up. So we, we struggle with um, video at The Economist in particular because we're all about <coughs> producing very short, concise articles that you can scan very quickly. You can't scan video. We really haven't found yet a way of doing video that really feels like it matches our, our values. So we're continuing to experiment. But um, you know, that is a question that all news organisations need to have an answer to. And um, so far, Vice is the, only, is the only one that sort of is consistently respected, I think, for having. Uh, the New York Times did some very nice things. You probably saw their stuff around the Winter Olympics, where they did these beautiful um, explainer videos. They, they were fantastic as well. But can you use that for, for all subjects? I'm not sure you can. So that's, that's tricky. That brings us on, actually, to explainers and wonkery. So Vox is Ezra Klein's startup. And it's all about explainers. And um, it's not quite as data heavy as 538, but which is, um, which is exactly Nate Silvers. Um, but they are in the same part of the map. So both of them are Wunderkind bloggers who left larger news organizations, um, the New York Times in Nate's case, and the Washington Post in the, we don't need that one, do we? Um, in the case of Ezra Klein. Um, and set up essentially clean sheet news organisations to do new things. And both of them are very keen on the idea that you can explain stuff to people if you just sort of let the data speak for itself. Um, and that the data will, if you just do lots of charts or, or explain things with, with lots of numbers. And, and this is, you know, this is quite close to, we're quite keen on that approach as well. So our take on this is um, our uh, explainer blog, um, which again is something we regard as ambassadorial content. We do everything in four paragraphs. There's a very strict formula for this. So I wrote an explainer explaining how Bitcoin worked in four paragraphs. And one of my colleagues wrote a four paragraph summary of Thomas Piketty's book uh, that we read on Monday, which is great actually. I mean, I've read, I've, I've read the book. I've read a lot of reviews of the book and I thought his, here we are, Thomas Piketty's Capital summarised in four paragraphs. It's bloody good. And it's done incredibly well on Twitter, that summary, because, you know, this is, a, this is a, what, what, you know, on the internet we call a TLDR. Too long, didn't read. Um, so TLDR is a summary, um, and this is a, this is a good example of that. So this sort of distilling things um, and, and explaining and, you know, uh, dark matter, what's that all about? Um, you know, these are... I, I like this stuff. I don't think it's... I'm not sure it's the basis of... I don't think it's necessarily always the right way to explain everything, um, but I think it's an important part of the mix. And so, again, we see the New York Times has a, uh, a new version of this, and after Nate Silver left, they set up a new thing called the Upshot. Um, and the Upshot is their, their version of Vox and, um, and so on. Now, what strikes me as slightly weird about the Upshot is it's great, and it's lots of explainers and lots of numbers, but does it really need to be its own thing with its own name? I mean, shouldn't it just be part of the, part of the coverage? I, you know, I think this is an open question. Do you, do you embed these new approaches into your existing coverage, or do you make a constellation of very, very, very narrow vertical things? And this is very much a, a debate that's going on at the moment. If you look at what's happening to Facebook or Google, they are creating constellations of apps that do different things. And um, so Facebook you know, has a messenger app and it has Instagram and it has a camera app, which no one uses. And it has a new app called Paper. And Google has got the Google, you know, the Gmail app and it's got the, um, the Chrome app and it's got the Google Drive app and it's just made the Google Docs apps. Um, 
And the idea is that those individual things meet a very specific need much better than a try to do it all in one place. And you essentially, we see the same thing going on with large news organisations unbundling themselves and saying, you know what, not everybody wants this everything in the kitchen sink newspaper. Why don't we do these more, more targeted things? And the jury is still out on whether that is um, the right way to, to go and whether you can sell those things separately. Some people are trying to sell them separately. So the New York Times has this new you know, cut-down thing, the New York, New York Times now. Um, but I think this is a very, very interesting debate. And we have, we have made a few very specialist apps. We have a daily audio app that we have. Um, and we have, uh, what else do we have? You know, so, so we've started down this sort of constellation of apps um, approach. And we've also created some of these sort of um, vertical things like this but essentially for us using data and explaining things are core to our core to our mission so um, I don't know how far down that path will go but anyway this is all an interesting debate that's happening another big interesting debate is what is 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 multimedia so that's sort of the snowfall question so you're all familiar with snowfall I'm, I'm sure snowfall is great they won a Pulitzer but it took something like 30 people six months to do so it's not really a you'll have all also read I imagine the Snowfall is really cool, but it's not the future of journalism articles. You better um, explain what Snowfall is. Oh, okay. Well, let's just find... If you haven't seen it, then it's... You know, you, when you see it, you'll go, oh, yeah, I know that. Um, so here it is. <coughs> is it loading? I hope it's loading. Uh, click that again. Right. So have you seen this? So this is... It's got a number of things. It's got um, scroll-driven navigation. So when you get to certain places and you don't have a slow internet connection, here we are, um, it, just, it just tips you into the, to the video. So it's sort of halfway to a TV documentary. It's very, very nice. It's beautiful. And they've done a bunch of things like this. Actually, I thought the best one was a report from a, um, from a ship that's protecting an obscure rock in the, um, somewhere in the South China Sea from the Chinese. And I can't remember... But it was, what was really good about it actually was its use of sound and still photography. Anyway, this is all very beautiful. Um, so the New York Times did this in whenever it was, late 2012, I think it was. And it's been incredibly influential because it shows you the sorts of things you can do if you're not constrained by a sort of print-first mentality. Um, but it led a lot of people to question how sort of sustainable it is as a model. This is all beautiful, but you can't. You can only do this for some stories, and it did take an enormous amount of effort. And obviously, the New York Times has a lot of resources. But you know, <coughs> is this what basically? What is the what's the sort of sustainable version of this? So we've all been we've all been working on our answer to that question. Um, the uh, the Guardian did one called Firestorm, which was like they did snow. We're going to do fire. <laughs> um, so let's let's find that one. Um, and I think that just, um, and in fact, that uses an off-the-shelf. I think that uses an off-the-shelf system, um, an off-the-shelf. Here we are. How how we did it? The most ambitious digital story. Um, so this is this is quite cool as well. <coughs> it's not hearing me when I click. Okay, here we are. Um, so uh, yes, now you have to click and enter because it's actually hosted on. a different site and I can't remember the name of the people who make it I think it's called I don't know I had a meeting with them last week anyway there's a there's a kit there's a there's a kit of stuff you can do so you can scroll down yeah, here we are 
and they, they, it's not Scrollkit, that's a, that's a JavaScript framework. Oh, what's it called? I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, uh, the BBC's used this one as well. Um, so it lets you do nice things with scrolling. And then you can tell a story and you can have maps and you can, um, here we are, you can have things pop up when you float over here. Um, so again, this is all very nice. And um, you look at it and go, oh, in the future, this is how things will look. And here you have, again, video where there's no play button. It just gets on with it, which I think is really cool. We haven't done that particular trick yet. Um, anyway, so what's our version of this? So, so we, our answer to this is, um, is uh, we introduced a new format um, called Essays. And they're, they're long form, they're 6,000 word song. That's actually quite short for us because we, our longest form pieces are called Special Reports and they're 14,000 words long. And we thought maybe that's a bit much for some people on some subjects. So we're going we're gonna to do, we'll still do those, but we'll also do these shorter pieces that are a mere 6,000 word song. So we've done a couple of them. This is one, and um, I went for this kind of Monty Python style um, illustration here. Um, and this is about, um, oh, actually, I think the browser might be having a few problems with all of these massive multimedia stories <coughs> loaded in. I'm gonna go and turn Firestorm off because I can see it slowing down. Uh, okay, let's do that. Let's close you as well. Okay. I think it's a bit happier now. Let's see. Wakey, wakey. Oh dear, still not very happy. I wonder which tab is causing the problem here. Kill up some tabs. Right, anyway, so um, so we did, we've done two so far and the third is in the works. Um, and essentially they look at a big subject over, over 6,000 words. They appear in print as well, but their commission is digital first. And we get to have some fun and do some... Um, some interesting things. So this one, for example, has a... Um, oh, God, it really is... There's something in the background that's making this computer very unhappy. Because this was all very fluid earlier on. Let's see if this one's happy. <coughs> that one seems to be happy. Yeah, so here's, here's what we did about democracy and the state of democracy. Um, and so we got to build a nice interactive that uses the Freedom House data and shows you the, the um, basically the high watermark of democracy about sort of 10 years ago. Um, so this is our version. And then, yes, yeah, so we've also got a new advertising model here, which is we're basically loading a, an iPad ad into a web page. And this is because the CPM on our iPad ads are much higher. They're the same as print. So, um, so this is called selling print advertising on the web. Uh, so we'll give that one a try. Um, anyway, yeah, so, so uh, this is the kind of thing that, this is our take on how do you do something like Snowfall. We don't want to do something as elaborate as Snowfall because it would, you know, the, the Economist has 80 journalists in the world, that, um, whereas the uh, New York Times has 1,200. So we, we don't have the resources to do something on their scale. But we have the resources to do something like this eight times a year. So that's what we're doing. And you can, um, yeah, so you can, you can incorporate... Uh, all of these elements into a single page. So that's that's our answer to that. But I mean, again, I'm not saying this is the right answer. I'm just saying it's the right answer for us. Um, but this is something that all news organisations are having to grapple with. What is the appropriate level of, um, you know, the appropriate way to use this new technology? So the idea of the essays is that we use them as a laboratory to develop new things, new. Uh, basically storytelling techniques which we can then apply to other stories so that's what we've been we've been using them for um, 
then there's video and I already talked about Vice so I don't think anyone has a really a good answer on video yet and we're all still mucking around but the, the, the people who are most commonly referred to as having a good answer and it's probably because they are a clean sheet startup are Vice um, so we've got to we've got to have an answer to that which we don't have. And then the other thing we're all grappling with, of course, is the switch to consumption on phones, and actually slightly bigger phones than this. So the next iPhones will be a bit bigger. Uh, but there, but it's very very clear that the the consumption of news is really it's not even just moving to tablets. Um, web advertising seems to have plateaued. Um, it really is all about these things, and this is as big a shift as the internet was in the first place. So. We all have to have business models that aren't just about digital, but they're specifically about mobile and about mobile on smartphones. And does that mean apps or not apps? Um, it probably means, you know, hybrid HTML5 um, with a native wrapper or whatever. But um, these are all things you'll be struggling with, I'm sure, as well. So again, I don't think we have the answer, but it's a very interesting time to be trying to grapple with all these things. So there, that's where I that's that's where I come out. That um, uh, some of what we do is applicable, and most of it isn't. And I hope you found that interesting. Mm -hmm.